This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. We're going to go out of sequence today a bit because we so enjoyed Will Durst's contribution to this program that we're going to put it right up front. Well, thanks, Doug. Will Durst here to marvel at George W. Bush's return to the national stage and his curious timing. Not what you would call your overwhelming popular demand for him. But then I guess even former war criminals going to make a living. The first volume of 43's memoirs has been released, although there'll be more. And although you know in your heart he wanted to call it Decisions the Deciding Decider Decided, fortunately, clearer heads at Crown Publishing prevailed, and it's simply titled Decision Points, as told to George Bush by Dick Cheney. No, no, I just made that part up. Neither is Amazon bundling the autobiography with My Pet Goat. But come on, it's not a bad idea. Not sure who edited this puppy, but I bet they burned through about four spell checks. The major problem facing booksellers is choosing which section to stock the book. Horror, science fiction, or true crime. It's about as revealing as a floor-length stainless steel negligee on your grandma. Even if you did want to look, you wouldn't see anything. George Bush and introspection. Not a match. The board goes back. And it's not quite up to the writing standards set in Millie's book, the first Bush administration tell-all, penned by his mother's dog. Maybe it's just a calculated continuation of his own personal don't-ask-don't-tell-then-lie-like-a-rug policy. In it, he talks about how happy he is to be out of Washington. And with all due respect, may I say, sir, that makes 310 million of us. Bush spends a lot of time complaining about the incivility of politics, totally oblivious to the fact his good buddy Karl Rove was responsible for adding a decimal point to the decibel damage. He further insists that waterboarding is legal and not torture, which is good, because a large portion of the book-reading public is going to choose waterboarding over reading this unapologetic, self-serving hogwash. Or, as compared to other presidential chronicles, not half bad. For Radio Parallax... I'm Will Durst. Crayon sold separately. And of course, those opinions, like all heard on this program, do not necessarily represent those of KDVS, our sponsors, or the regions of the University of California. I'd say Will has pretty much expressed my opinion, however. And no doubt many of yours as well. We expect to have more to say about uh, the George Bush Presidential Library a little bit later. But let's begin the show now, as we like to do, with On This Date in History. The date in question is the 18th of November. It was on November 18th in the year 1307, according to legend, that the story of Swiss patriot William Tell shooting an apple off his son's head was first told. And yes, by exercising a great deal of restraint, we're going to not go with using the William Tell Overture. On November 18th in 1497, the great Portuguese explorer Vasco da Gama reached the Cape of Good Hope at the southern tip of Africa, preparatory to turning into the Indian Ocean and finding a new sea route directly from Europe to India. On November 18th in 1869, Lucy Stone and Henry Blackwell formed the American Woman Suffrage Association. 
That was in their quest to win women the right to vote, something they succeeded in by the year 1920. Which was a damn long time from its start in 1869, wouldn't you say? Better late than never. And speaking of better late than never, it was on November 18th in 1883, at noon to be exact, that American and Canadian railroads began using four continental time zones to end the confusion of dealing with thousands of local times. Which seems like an astonishingly late development, doesn't it? On this date in 1978, the People's Temple leader, Jim Jones, led hundreds of his followers to amass murder-slash-suicide at their agricultural commune in remote northwestern Guyana. The paranoid megalomaniac Jones was distressed at the defection of his members, who planned to leave the commune with Congressman Leo Ryan. Jones then ordered the murder of the congressman and took his own life along with about a thousand followers. On this date in 1987, the Joint U.S. Congressional Committee investigating the Iran-Contra scandal concluded that the Reagan administration exhibited, quote, secrecy, deception, and disdain for the law, unquote. The scandal involved a plan to send funds from secret weapon sales to Iran to finance a war against the Sandinista government down in Nicaragua. While a number of government officials were convicted of various crimes as a result, some of the big fish in this, apparently including the Vice President of the United States, George Herbert Walker Bush, went unscathed. And finally, on November 18th in 1995, the Vatican proclaimed that the Roman Catholic ban on women as priests is a definitive, infallible, and unquestionable part of the Church's doctrine. Proving once again that in its, in its efforts to modernize, the Catholic Church is rocketing forward into the 13th century. Uh, we should note, too, the movie we praised very highly on last week's program, Fair Game, is now a playing locally. I'm sure many of you are going to want to see it. And yes, we did notice the slight, uh, slight incongruity of uh, having Russ Baker on two weeks ago to talk about some of the worst behavior of the Central Intelligence Agency and spy agencies uh, in general, and comparing that to our defense of Valerie Plame on last week's program. But uh, the way we look at it, no organization is a monolith, and I certainly do hope, and you probably do too, as well, dear listener, that there are people out there working in spy agencies hard to protect us. I think the problem comes in when you go to define us, and it turns out that people with names like Rockefeller and Mellon seem to get a lot more contribution to the us than the rest of us. Well, that's sometimes where the problem comes in. And this whole question of who's doing what in our culture wars and in our informational wars that go on as we, uh, you know, we try and sort out the world, and there are people out there trying to help us sort things out. Well... We'll talk a little bit later about how it was that the Central Intelligence Agency decided to influence the course of art appreciation in the U.S. and around the world, which is a hell of a story. Our quote of the day comes from CIA operative Tom Braden, who I guess later was on, what, Point Counterpoint? as one of TV's in-house liberals. Anyway, referring to this uh, CIA modern art program, Tom Braden said, It had to be a secret. In order to encourage openness, we had to be secret. Our quip of the day comes from Andrew Carnegie, who said, As I grow older, I pay less attention to what men say. I just watch what they do. 
All right, for our jokes of the day, we have a contribution from Dean who sent an email uh, last month, which I thought was pretty funny. You may have seen some version of this titled Growing Up Without a Cell Phone. This will probably really divide people from the over 40 versus the under 40 categories. But notes the piece, before cell phones, there were no MP3s or Napsters or iTunes. If you wanted to steal music, you had to hitchhike to the record store and shoplift it yourself. We didn't have call waiting. If you were on the phone and somebody called, they got a busy signal, and that was it. There was no cartoon network either. You could only get cartoons on Saturday morning. We had to wait all week for cartoons. You spoiled punks. And then there was car seats. <laughs> Noting, oh please. Mom threw you in the back seat and you hung on. If you're lucky, you got the safety arm across the chest at the last moment if she had to stop suddenly. And if your head hit the dashboard, well, that was your fault for calling shotgun in the first place. Anyway, a revival of an old theme. Which, of course, is you kids have it too soft today. I think this tradition goes back to about 400 B.C. Our stat of the day is $43,000 per year. That's the amount that's being spent to preserve nearly 6 million paper ballots cast by Florida voters in the disputed 2000 presidential election. They're still being preserved in a climate-controlled room in Tallahassee, which I think is great. Why don't we get around to actually counting those votes and demonstrating that Al Gore won the presidency? Might be good for this nation, don't you think? I know, it's kind of a moot point now. But is it really, with George Bush out on the book trail? Think about it. All right, let's jump right into the good, the bad, and the ugly. It was a good week last week for playing it safe after the Gandhi Museum in Mumbai, India, also known as Bombay, removed all the ripe coconuts from the trees before President Obama's visit, said a museum official. People do get hurt or even killed from falling coconuts. Why take a chance? Actually, there is a serious travel tip in that. If you're in the tropics sometime and you want to go camping, beware of camping under coconut trees. Those giant palms have this nasty habit of dropping uh, coconuts down on you, and they're not like the things you buy in the store. These are the whole husks, which are about, you know, bigger than bowling balls. And dropping one, one of those on you from 25 or 30 feet, well, choose your camping spot carefully. On the other hand, it was a, a bad week last week for gourmets, although I guess it would be a good week for uh, the American Trial Lawyers Association. In the wake of a Florida man suing a restaurant for not teaching him how to eat an artichoke. Yes, apparently Arturo Carvajal claims he suffered severe abdominal pain and discomfort after eating an entire grilled artichoke, a dish, quote, he had never seen or heard of previously, unquote. Carvajal now says the restaurant failed to explain that only the tender inner leaves are digestible. Okay, travel tip number two. If you're served a cooked object which you don't have any idea how to consume, it's imperative you seek instruction at that juncture. To a certain degree, we can admire someone for just winging it. 
But you do have to wonder, at what point, as he was trying to consume all the leaves of the entire grilled artichoke, that some doubts must have entered his mind, don't you think? On the other hand, in the worst-case scenario, how bad can a grilled artichoke be? I'm sure his discomfort was only temporary. And finally, it was an ugly week last week for getting away from it all after this well-known episode in Carnival Cruise Line's Splendor uh, left it dead in the water after an engine room fire. This caused 3,299 vacationers on board to go without hot water, hot food, or working toilets for days. According to one story, the U.S. Navy airlifted in bottled water and spam, which then resulted in a denial by the cruise line that any spam had been dropped on board the ship. No, Radio Parallax has not been able to run down that particular story, but we are going to make some inquiries with our San Diego connections. All right, from the Only in America file, we have this item. Apparently, New York City's well-heeled dog owners can now bring their pets to a luxury spa and nightclub for canines. The 13,000-square-foot Fetch Club in Lower Manhattan features an indoor lawn. Oh, that's, that's not the lawn you want to play on. A workout room, massage, and aromatherapy facilities. Also, apparently, a range of high-end snacks, including doggy sushi. According to this story, at night, while the owners go to a movie or dinner, member dogs can tap their paws to the beat of a disco, complete with a mirrored ball. Says owner Peter Balistreri, Dogs in the city are a new breed. They've become like humans. No, no, no. In my opinion, this is a demonstration of humans becoming more like dogs. Or at least demonstrating the IQ of our canine helpers. And the only in Italy file, we have the fact that uh, after enduring for 2,000 years, a house in Pompeii collapsed last week following heavy rains. The House of the Gladiators, which is thought to have been a residence for fighters awaiting competition in the the nearby amphitheater, was decorated with frescoes showing martial scenes. Erupted in A.D. 79 and buried under, under ash, the entire city of Pompeii is a UNESCO World Heritage Site. It was preserved almost intact after Mount Vesuvius erupted in A.D. 79 and buried it under ash. Numerous Italian commentators blamed the damage on Prime Minister Silvio Berlusconi's government, which cut funding for cultural preservation. For their part, the culture ministry officials blamed a shoddy renovation of the building in 1950 after it had been bombed in World War II. Well, 1950 was 60 years ago. You'd think they'd have gotten around to shoring things up in the past six decades, wouldn't you? All right, let's talk about this Art World story, which was sent to us by Stephen, which I thought was an article written last week. And in fact, it was a reprint of an article written on the 22nd of October in 1995 by Francis Stoner Saunders, which I guess I have to read from. This is quite amazing. Says the article, For decades in art circles, it was either a rumor or a joke, but now it is confirmed as a fact. The Central Intelligence Agency used American modern art, including the works of such artists as Jackson Pollock, 
Robert Motherwell, Willem de Kooning, and Mark Rothko as a weapon in the Cold War. The connection is improbable. This was a period in the 50s and 60s when the great majority of Americans disliked or even despised modern art. President Truman summed up the popular view when he said, If that's art, then I'm a hottentot. As for the artists themselves, many were ex-communists, barely acceptable in the America of the McCarthyite era, and certainly not the sort of people normally likely to receive U.S. government backing. Why did the CIA support them? Because in the propaganda war with the Soviet Union, this new artistic movement could be held up as proof of the creativity, the intellectual freedom, and the cultural power of the U.S. Russian art, strapped into the communist ideological straitjacket, could not compete. Noted to Francis Stoner Saunders, the decision to include culture and art in the U.S. Cold War arsenal was taken as soon as the CIA was founded in 1947. Dismayed at the appeal communism still had for many intellectuals and artists in the West, the new agency set up a division, the Propaganda Assets Inventory. <laughs> I, that's, that's what it was called, the Propaganda Assets Inventory, which at its peak could influence more than 800 newspapers, magazines, and public information organizations. They joked that it was like a Wurlitzer jukebox. When the CIA pushed a button, it could hear whatever tune it wanted, played around the world. Going on, the next key step came in 1950 when the International Organizations Division, IOD, was set up under Tom Braden. It was this office which subsidized the animated version of George Orwell's Animal Farm, which sponsored American jazz artists, opera recitals, and the Boston Symphony Orchestra's international touring program. Its agents were placed in the film industry, in publishing houses, and even as travel writers for the celebrated Fodor Guides. As we now know, it promoted America's anarchic avant-garde movement, Abstract Expressionism. Now, apparently in 1947, the State Department organized and paid for a touring international exhibit entitled Advancing American Art, with the aim of rebutting Soviet suggestions that America was a cultural desert. But the show caused outrage at home, prompting Truman to make that hot-and-tot remark, and one bitter congressman to declare, I'm just a dumb American who pays taxes for this kind of trash. The tour had to be canceled. Noting that the U.S. government now faced a dilemma, um, which was discrediting the idea that, it was, that we were a sophisticated, culturally rich democracy, um, so they called in the CIA. Foundations were set up, museums were contacted, exhibitions were arranged, and abstract expressionism was promoted all over the world. By the way, this wasn't a bad deal for people who were promoting this if they went out and bought quite a few of these uh, masterpieces and then watched as their value went into the stratosphere. But that quote from Tom Braden at the top of the show comes from this article. He noted that it was very difficult to get Congress to go along with some of the things we wanted to do, to send art abroad, to send symphonies abroad, to publish magazines abroad. That's one of the reasons it had to be done covertly. As I mentioned before, he it had to be a secret. In order to encourage openness, we had to be secret. This is a topic we're going to have to return to in future installments of this program because I find the whole thing fascinating. And in other news from the art world, apparently New York Gallery owner Lawrence Salander is now being called the Bernard Madoff of the art world. Apparently Salander would sell art he didn't own, a process which apparently earned him $120 million dollars. 
article on this by Helen O'Neill in the Associated Press, uh, explains this as kind of a convoluted situation. And where the cons begin and end, I guess, is a bit unclear. Asked Helen O'Connell, was it all a great con from the start, or did Salander, as some suggest, cross to the dark side of the art world, taking advantage of a strangely unregulated place where priceless works are often consigned to galleries with little more than a handshake? Article quotes Manhattan gallery owner Joan Washburn as saying, it's a world of relationships, friendships, handshakes. The article notes it's also a world of fabulous wealth, enormous egos, and creative pride. Artists, eager to have their work exhibited in the finest galleries, hand over paintings with few safeguards. Paper trails can be murky. Title is not always clear. And the agreements that are signed when a work is handed to a gallery for sale or for exhibit offer little protection if the gallery owner is dishonest or goes bankrupt. Clearly, we need to learn more about this world of modern art. And of course... We will seek to do that for future installments of this show. I mentioned a few weeks ago in this program the excellent articles by Carrie Peyton Dahlberg in the Sacramento Bee about doctors and uh, the California Medical Board. Her article noted how difficult it was sometimes to get the medical board to act when uh, doctors were misbehaving. And I guess the same thing can be said about uh, real estate. Let's close this segment with an article from the Sacramento Bee by... Robert Lewis, which noted that in February of last year, when Sacramento area mortgage broker Christopher Jared Warren was caught trying to cross from Canada back into the U.S. with four ounces of platinum and $70,000 hidden in his shoes, that arrest made nationwide news, and Warren became yet another face of greed and alleged criminality, like the way they put alleged in the B, in the mortgage finance business. Mr. Lewis goes on to note... um, You'd never know this, however, if you were to check with the California Department of Real Estate. Mr. Warren, whose fraud trial is ongoing, is still a licensed broker and has no disciplinary action on his record with the department, which promotes its online licensing database as a tool for customers to make sure they're dealing with reputable professionals. Noted Lewis, this is not an isolated case. The B found dozens of real estate professionals, people who've been charged with real estate-related crimes, or were sued by the state for fraud-related misdeeds, or who have pled guilty to such wrongdoings, well, some are still licensed and have no notations, flags, or disciplinary sanctions listed on their records with the Department of Real Estate. And frankly, I really didn't realize we had a Department of Real Estate. But then again, no no sooner having learned about this, uh, this bureaucracy, apparently it's not really functioning anyway. But yeah, without any such flags or disciplinary actions, this means that brokers, guys who are going to prison, are authorized to sell homes and originate mortgage loans. To find this out, the Beat took a look at 2010 press releases from the U.S. Attorney's Office and State Attorney General's Office and past news reports to compile a list of people who've been charged with real estate crime or sued by the state. The Beat then ran those names, about 260 total, through the Department of Real Estate's licensee database and use other public records to confirm their identities. At least 45 of the accused or convicted wrongdoers were listed as licensed brokers or salespeople by the Department of Real Estate. Customers would have no way of knowing of the accusations. So apparently a spokesman for the department said, well, the agency's required to take certain steps before suspending or revoking a license. 
adding, the process starts with a complaint or accusation, which leads to legal findings by both department investigators and the accused. Then comes a hearing before an administrative law judge who issues a ruling. The ruling goes before the real estate commissioner who accepts it or rejects it. No indication in the article of what, what the real estate commissioner uses to, to either accept it or reject it. Whim, I guess, is one of the options. And by the way, how do you become real estate commissioner in the state of California? Note of the article, here's some of the people listed as licensees in good standing. <laughs> These are people who have already pled guilty to mortgage fraud-related crimes. Richard Mays, co-founder of AmeriCorps Funding, remains a licensed broker in Southern California. Despite pleading guilty in August 07 to his role in a mortgage fraud scam that caused more than $18 million in losses to banks. Let's see, in July, Sandra Meza pled guilty in federal court to bribing a Bank of America employee in Simi Valley to expedite a short sale. She's still licensed, no disciplinary actions. How about Anthony J. Sims, largest home builder in Chico, pled guilty to his role in multi-million dollar fraud scheme. Again, remains licensed, no disciplinary actions on his record. The spokesman for the uh, Department of Real Estate said that, well, the department might not move to discipline people like Sims because there's no point. If that person's headed to jail, it doesn't necessarily make sense to use the department's limited resources to revoke a license. Well, I have to say Radio Parallax would have to disagree on that. Noted James Zarakta in the article, who's, who's an attorney with the Law Foundation of Silicon Valley, notes that uh, a revocation is not just symbolic. Criminal trials can take time. There's nothing to, to stop suspected fraudsters from continuing to operate if they're still licensed. This lawyer represented some victims in a civil case against some mortgage swindlers down in the Bay Area who were charged with mortgage fraud-related crimes in Santa Clara County. That was in the spring of 05 and were ultimately convicted in the fall of 08. But while that case was winding its way through the legal system, the two were able to continue operating their mortgage business, being fully licensed, apparently. In fact, the B did a quick check of the Department of Real Estate's online license, uh, uh, license database and showed that the man who was sentenced in May of 09 to 20 years in state prison is still a licensed broker. Yeah, no sense using those scarce resources to revoke his license. I guess the employees are, you know, too busy, you know, having coffee breaks and, I guess, showing homes. Of course, that's just idle speculation on my part. Uh, we already heard from Will Durst at the top of the, of the segment, so let's go uh, and take a short break. You are listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. We got plenty more in segments two and three. Believe you me. Don't go away. <laughs> 